0: Our uh, sermon outline it says, Love that Counts. And turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 so that you can follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, be reading verses 6 through 13. in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to your word again this morning. We find that we still need to learn a lot about the Christian life. We don't understand why love and holiness are so important, and why Paul keeps praying for these things. So Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Do this for each of us this morning in His name and for His glory. Amen. Amen. I have a good friend named Mike Graham. He is a PCA pastor in uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And about eight years ago, he preached here at Potomac Hills while looking for a call after he graduated from Covenant Seminary. And he eventually received a call to. Hickory Grove Presbyterian Church there in uh, Tennessee in a small town near Nashville. And uh, Mike and his church have developed a partnership uh, with a Presbyterian in India, the Presbytery of South India. And that partnership is called Nation to Nation. And so twice a year he goes over there uh, for several weeks to preach and teach and to train pastors over there. And however, he's not going to the major cities where they're used to having foreigners come, but rather he's going to out-of-the-way country places and living with the people there and eating the same food that they eat. This works out great for the whole cross-cultural experience, but uh, not so great for the whole digestive system experience. And he usually goes through several days of sickness before his body starts to adjust to being in such a different place and eating such different food. And so in his recent prayer letter, uh, he writes about this. And he starts off by saying, "Uh, James 5 became very real to me here in India. Uh, He was just there the last three weeks and, in fact, just got back last night. He says, James 5 was very real to me in India, especially the part about asking the elders to pray over the sick and anoint them with oil. I have not been the only one sick this week. However, I was able to get Cipro and to drink Coke and take ibuprofen for the fever and Imodium for diarrhea and Peptobismol to settle my stomach. So today, I feel much better. These people were also sick, but they could afford no medication. All they can afford is a little coconut oil. As much as I complain about insurance and medical costs, we have good medical care, at least by comparison to South India. In fact, it was my pleasure to pray for this anointing with oil and for healing. And it's amazing how feeling the pain and the sickness and the suffering that others are feeling causes us to be less abstract and more compassionate. I was equally equally surprised that a few of these people who had no money to buy medication, when they would get up and we would pray for them, they would actually put a pittance of money in my hands. It bothered me to take this, but I didn't know what to do. I was praying they would not see a uh, magic in the oil, but see the oil as an instrument of healing in the hands of Christ, much like medicine. But I didn't want to dishonor them by not taking it since so many people had gathered around for prayer. By the time I finished, there were 170 rupees next to me. That's the Indian money. It was just maybe $3.50 to me. I could buy about three Cokes. But to them, it was far more. Also, all week, a pastor he was working with, Pastor Joyakim, kept wearing this Scottish plaid-looking scarf around his shoulder. I was wondering why he wore this colorful scarf, and, and he kept pulling it up around his shoulder, and I figured he was just really getting into the Scottish Presbyterian thing. I didn't say anything to him. When I would pat him on the shoulder or vigorously shake his hand in greeting. And at the end, Pastor Joachim wanted me to pray for him. So I said, What can I pray for you? And he said, For my broken arm. (laughs) And he couldn't afford treatment. Talk about shame and enlightenment and compassion coming together all at one time. It ought to teach me the danger of making quick, stupid assessments. I was aghast. Here I was projecting why I might wear a scarf like that you know, for appearance's sake or just for something silly. And the reality was it was his wife's only scarf and he was using it as a sling. If that wasn't humbling enough, let me tell you what Pastor Joachim told me. I'm paraphrasing, but this is about what he said. Two years ago when you came to teach, you taught on Luke 7 and the adulterous woman at Simon's house. He remembered this teaching in some detail. Something happened inside of me when you talked about this gospel that changed my life. So when they said you were coming, I had to come and hear no matter what. I couldn't believe it. I just swallowed my shame and shut up and held his hand much more gently now. Mike went there to teach them about the love of God with his words. And they wound up teaching Mike about the love of God with their lives. That's what today's passage is all about. And I wrote Mike, told him I, I was going to share this, and, and I got a message back from him this morning and said, I'm very grateful that Pastor Joachim can minister grace to your life and to your church as much as he did to me. The, um, but this passage is about trying to understand what loving Jesus really looks like, and praying that God would bring that kind of love for him and for each other into our lives. And Paul starts by telling us that they, Paul and uh, uh, Silas, were comforted by their faith. They're comforted by the faith of the Thessalonians. Look at verse 6 through 8. Comforted by their faith. Paul had sent Timothy to them on a long and difficult journey from Athens back to Thessalonicus, from the southern part of Greece to the northern part of Greece. It's a distance of about 200 miles, probably a 10-day journey walking at the time, and to see how the believers were doing there. And if Timothy stayed there a week to minister to the Thessalonians and then headed back towards Athens and beyond Athens to Corinth, where he met up with Paul, the whole trip probably took about a month. And to Paul, that must have seemed like an eternity And now Timothy has come back to Paul with the news that the Thessalonians are standing firm in their faith. They hadn't been moved by their afflictions. Uh, They hadn't lost the faith due to persecution or to the devil's temptations. And upon hearing such a great report, Paul wrote these words, starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith, he actually uses the same word, we use for gospel. He says he's brought us gospel of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul says in verse 7, that Timothy's report brought him such joy and encouragement that even in the midst of his own sufferings, it lifted his spirits. He says, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You've got to remember what Paul's life was like. You know, he didn't go down to, you know, Disney Athens. Not that people would do such a thing, but. You know, you remember Paul had been attacked and beaten and jailed in Philippi, is persecuted and chased out of town in Thessalonica and Berea, rejected and mocked in Athens. And he would later summarize this in 2 Corinthians 11. He would say, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's an ancient version of stone, not a modern version. They threw rocks at him. You know, we don't think about this you sign up for Christianity. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Forty lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods. And, you know, on the good day, they threw rocks at you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journey, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Perhaps there's a theme there. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fail and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And in the midst of this life, it was tremendously encouraging for him to hear Timothy's report, to know that his labor had not been in vain. And rather than bringing uh, bad news that the Thessalonians' faith was wavering, Timothy had brought good news. He'd brought gospel to Paul's life, that their faith was bearing spiritual fruit and love. And this good news is as thrilling to Paul as the gospel. And it's clear because he uses the same word. Nothing filled the apostles with joy like news that their converts, these churches that they planted, the people there, were standing fast in the Lord. It's the desired result for all of their ministry. And they were greatly reassured that this was true for the Thessalonians as well. And because they were comforted by their faith, they found themselves praying for their faith. Verses 9 and 10. Praying for their faith. Here Paul's making a point. He asks a rhetorical question. These two verses, one sentence, one question. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And the force of Paul's rhetorical question is, we cannot thank God enough for you because of all the joy that you've brought to our hearts by your endurance in these trials. And it's noteworthy uh, that Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' behavior. He doesn't take any credit for it. Paul acknowledges uh, that their endurance is really a tribute to the work of God in their lives. As Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he commended the Thessalonians, but he also recognized and acknowledged the hand of God at work in their lives. And Paul gives thanks for Timothy's great news, and he emphasizes his eagerness for a return visit to to Thessalonica uh, by telling them just how he's praying for them. And, And due to their forced early departure from Thessalonica, the missionaries had been unable to complete their usual round of instruction for the believers there and the fundamentals of the faith. And news of their perseverance didn't relieve Paul of his desire to return to them. And though they're enduring a lot uh, for their faith, they still needed more instruction and spiritual growth. Paul says he wants to supply what was lacking in their faith. Think of it as the Thessalonians were uh, tender young plants and their tender roots held them firm against the present storm, but they still needed to grow and mature and put down deep roots. The Bible uses that uh analogy often in the Psalms and and Colossians, that we need to be firmly rooted in the faith. But this is the first explicit reference to deficiencies in their spiritual condition. Deficiencies do more to immaturity than to waywardness. You know, they haven't really uh, been taught a lot about the faith, not so much that they're going off and doing a lot of bad things. And up to now, Paul's described them as having the characteristics of new Christians, but he says they're deficient in certain respects. Perhaps as a a child would be deficient in comparison with an adult. Okay, it doesn't mean that they're bad, they just have a lot more growing up to do. And in chapters 4 and 5, Paul's going to directly address, minister to some of those deficiencies. One particular lack in their instruction related to sexual holiness, and Paul's going to address that in chapter 4, and Rich is going to preach about that next Sunday, and uh, we'll send out a reminder announcement, uh, particularly for those of you with children, uh, so you know what's coming next Sunday. Another area in which they need more instruction concerns the second coming and final resurrection, and Paul's going to address that later in chapter 4, and we'll get to that in two weeks. But these verses give us a glimpse into Paul's uh, private life. The text says that he prayed night and day most earnestly. That doesn't mean he prayed nonstop, but it means he kept praying. During the day, he kept praying for him During the evening, he kept praying for him. It wasn't nonstop, but it was sort of over and over and over again. And he prayed most earnestly that God would let him see them again. And so he prayed for them, and not only did he pray for their faith, but he also found himself praying for their love and holiness. Verses 11 through 13, praying for their love and holiness. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Thessalonians are already noted for their love, but Paul prays that it might overflow. He says that it might increase and abound even more. One commentator wrote that genuine Christian love is the one thing in the Christian life that can't be carried to excess. You can't love too much. The image of love overflowing its container suggests that Christian love is something that wells up from within a person naturally. And Paul's concern that it would overflow to everyone, not just to those in the church. He says love for one another and for all. And his love for them is to serve as their model. But increasingly, their love uh, isn't the only issue that Paul addressed. They need to have their hearts established, essentially meaning that they needed strengthening by God on the inside, in their inner being. Notice Paul didn't pray that they would be sinless. That's impossible. He prayed that they would be blameless. That is, that after they sinned, they would deal with it as God requires, and so they would be free from any charges that could otherwise be reasonably made against them. And before God, they should be holy, separated to God and separated for God, And Paul longed that when Jesus Christ would return, he would find them blameless before men and holy before God. Now, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, when I was a kid, and probably even more so uh, as a teen, you know, I'd hear that word holiness. It seemed a strange word, it was very mysterious. You know, especially if somebody would point to, uh, a particular person and said, You see that man? He's a holy man. And I didn't quite know what to make of that, whether that meant he was part of some secret club or that he never smiled or that he didn't like ice cream, you know, or maybe he was living at some higher level of existence. Holiness seemed to me to be something distant, something totally removed from ordinary life. I think a lot of Christians have that sort of view of holiness. You know, it's something for just a few, sort of those extra special holy people. But It's not for just regular folks like us. And uh, I think sometimes God's people see holiness as this sort of abstract or esoteric thing, something lofty and unattainable, something that's so religious and so spiritual, it's hard to know how it connects with real life. But Paul doesn't see it that way at all. I mean, simply put, he's trying to tell the Thessalonians, and he's trying to tell us, that if you want to be perfected in holiness, you need to grow in love. If you want to be perfected in holiness, you need to grow in love. Well, that's good to know. But how do we do that? Well, I think there's two critical commitments that we need to make if we're going to grow in love and in holiness. We've seen how Paul responds to his critics. Much of this letter is written in response to his critics. He defends his visit. He explains why he hasn't been able to return. But in the course of his explanation, I think we can discern two major responsibilities of pastoral ministry for today. But I think it's important to note these two tasks aren't just for pastors or elders certainly is for them, but I think they apply to each and every person who claims to be a follower of Christ. And I think these two commitments are critical. And the first one is our commitment to the Word of God. Our commitment to the Word of God. In First Thessalonians chapter 2, which uh, we finished uh, last week, Paul refers to his message three times as the gospel of God and t- twice, excuse me, twice as the Word of God. And it's Paul's firm assurance that his message came from God and that his gospel is in reality God's gospel. He didn't invent it. He was the steward entrusted with it. He was the herald commissioned to proclaim it. And above all, he has to be faithful. And every authentic Christian ministry begins here with the conviction that we've been called to handle God's word as its guardians and its heralds, its stewards, its proclaimers. We don't need to be satisfied with rumors of God. It's not a substitute for the good news from God. Now, of course, we're not apostles like Paul was. But we believe that in the New Testament... The teaching of the apostles has been preserved and has now been passed on to us in its definitive form. In fact, Jude, the brother of James, writes in his epistle, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write uh, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered uh, to the saints. That's what uh, we have to know We're trustees of that apostolic faith, which is given to us in the Word of God and which works powerfully in the lives of those who believe. And our task is to keep it and study it and expound it and apply it and obey it. So our first commitment, if we're going to grow in holiness, if we're going to grow in love, our first commitment is to the Word of God. Everybody wants to grow in holiness and love, but not everyone wants to put time in to the Bible, and it just doesn't work. There is no shortcuts. You have to be committed to the Word of God. Second, there's our commitment to the people of God. We've seen Paul express his deep love and care for the Thessalonians. You know, he, he likens himself to being a mother to them, being gentle with them, to being a father with them, and encouraging and exhorting them. And he, he acted towards them as if they were his children. And they were his spiritual children since he'd introduced them to Christ. So he fed them and taught them. He earned his uh, own living when he was there so as not to be a burden to them. He was cur- concerned to see them grow into maturity. He's gentle and sacrificial in all of his dealings with them. And then in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 from verse uh, 17, all the way to the end of today's passage, so that's last week's and this week's passage, Paul gives us this moving illustration of what he's been writing about. He's laying his heart bare before them. He speaks over and over again about his love for them. He'd left them with the greatest reluctance, and in fact says he'd been torn away from them against his will. And he tried hard to visit them, but all his attempts were thwarted. And so desperate for news uh, of them, he found it unbearable. And so at great cost, he sends Timothy to encourage them and to find out how they were. And when Timothy comes back with good news, Paul is overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving. All this time, he'd been pouring out his heart for them in prayer. And the fact that his life is unavoidably bound together with theirs. Verse 8, he says, After getting this good report, he says, for now, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so that's a double commitment of the Christian. First, to the Word of God, and second, to the people of God. And that way, we're all ministers of the Word, and we're all ministers of the church. Another way of expressing the same thing is to say, the two chief characteristics of ministry are truth and love. It's those things that build up the church. Ephesians 4, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And yet, I think this combination is increasingly rare in the church. Some people are great champions of the truth, and they're anxious to fight for it, but they display little love. Others are great advocates of love, but they don't have an equal commitment to the truth as Jesus and the apostles did. And truth can be too hard if it's not softened by love. And love can be too soft if it's not strengthened by truth. It's really not an either-or situation. It's a both-and. We need truth and we need love. And if we ask how we can Uh, develop these two commitments uh, to the Word of God and to the people of God, this balanced combination of truth and love, there's only one possible answer, and that's namely by the power of the Holy Spirit, since He is the source of both truth and love. Uh, He is the Spirit of truth, Jesus says in John 14, and Paul writes uh, about the fruit of the Spirit, and the first thing he says is the fruit of the Spirit is love in Galatians 5. Therefore we have no greater need than for the fullness of the Spirit who alone can lead us in the single path of truth and love. There's no way we can know this side of heaven what that's going to look like for us. But We know what the commitments are we need to make. We can see some of that in the life of Paul and in the uh, Thessalonian church. But what does it look like for us? I'm not sure I can answer that question for you. Let me share again a little story that will maybe shed a little light on what that day will be like uh, when this all starts to come together for us. I'll finish where we began. I'm going to pick up again from the prayer letter from Mike Graham, pastor of Hickory Grove Presbyterian Church. He, he writes after his humbling experience with uh, Pastor Joyakim, uh where he was uh, patting him on the shoulder and shaking his hand vigorously only to find out he had a broken arm. I love that. The, uh, he goes on to write and he says, Later, Babu, that's the name of one of the pastors from Gallipoli. It's a very remote village where I thought the dogs would eat me two years ago. Chitababu came after everything was concluded. He'd finished the teaching for the weekend. This is last Sunday evening. I was sitting down in a chair exhausted. I had prayed for over a hundred people. The infirmities were overwhelming and I had no idea. And Pastor Chittababu came up, took my hand and would not let it go. He started shaking and he began saying thank you and he started breaking He was trying to hold back, but he couldn't. The tears started coming. First, just a little on cheeks, but they kept coming and coming and coming until he dropped to his knees, weeping uncontrollably. I was speechless. He was thanking me for sharing Jesus with them. He finally looked up and through now a current of tears said in broken but beautiful English, we pray for you and your family and your church every day. When he said it, I believed him. There were times this week when I felt that when I share the gospel with these people, I feel so out of place because they enjoy the gospel so much more. But when Pastor Chittabaubu said, we pray for you and your family and your church every day, I knew it was all worth it because I learned so much and I can be a better pastor. But more so, it's worth it because we need these brothers and sisters in India far more than they need us. They help us to see Jesus. Those Christians in India, they love Mike and they pray for Mike and they help Mike to see Jesus. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do in this passage. To love each other and to pray for each other and to help each other to see Jesus. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.